You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Well, so for those of you who are familiar with the Enneagram personality tool, I think most of you probably are, um, I identify as a type six on the Enneagram, which means that like every type, I have, uh, you know, certain gifts and strengths that God has given me, and I have also uh, particular vulnerabilities and core weaknesses that I struggle with. So um, the gift of a six is that like on my, on my good day, like in a good moment, sixes reflect the faithfulness and loyalty and something of the steadfast love of God in the world and in our relationships. And so that's me operating out of the Holy Spirit and kind of functioning at my best. However, uh, what's also true about me that, that probably most of you don't know about, except unless you're like my wife or somebody that's really, 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 like really close to me, uh, what you probably don't know about me is that a lot of times, while I may appear to be solid and steady and like stable on the surface, um, beneath the surface, I'm actually often really afraid. Um, and I carry, I can, I can carry a lot of doubt, particularly self-doubt and uncertainty, or really the word for it is I can carry a lot of anxiety. And this is the core weakness of a six. Okay. So listen to the way a couple of Enneagram teachers have described sixes. We'll put this on the screen. Quote, uh, sixes do their best to be solid and responsible, but they are often troubled by an undercurrent of doubt and anxiety. In fact, sixes live in a state of worry and then find something to worry about. So we worry about what we're going to worry about. When I don't have anything to worry about, I get worried. Okay, that's kind of how it typically works. Their core weakness is anxiety. Always scanning their surroundings, looking for problems, expecting that something negative could happen at any time. To manage their anxiety, they go into worst-case scenario thinking and over-preparing, which makes them more anxious. Instead, uh, inside their mind is a nagging voice constantly asking, but what about this? And this can leave them in a constant state of apprehension that's a guardedness and worry. Welcome to my world. Uh, this This is where I feel like the Enneagram really does kind of read my mail. And, you know, if you ask my wife, she'll tell you, like, I'm, I'm infamous for saying, yeah, but what about this? But what about that? But have you thought about this? But what if this goes wrong? But what happens if we get there and it's not the way we thought it would be? And like, what happens if and what happens when? And, and it's just my mind is always kind of racing out ahead of me and imagining like all the possible worst case scenarios of what could go wrong. That's anxiety. And um, over the last six or seven years, I've done a lot of therapy and spiritual direction around this area. And so I'm learning to approach my anxiety with compassion and with curiosity. But um, if I'm honest, there's a part of me that's really ashamed of this part of me that feels that can feel so anxious. And I can get really angry toward my anxiety because it's it's plagued me my whole life, really. Um, so. The first time it came up for me in therapy several years ago that I remembered consciously being anxious. By the way, I don't know if 
so I'm, I'm being a little bit vulnerable and I don't know if it's making you uncomfortable if I'm picking up on something. I don't know if this is too weird for you, but probably I'm just anxious. Okay. So, uh, but I remember consciously remember the first time ever feeling anxious. I was about four years old. Um, and I don't know. All I knew is that something was unstable in the home and looking back on it. I, I can see, like, I, I'm not going to get into the details of that with you in this moment because that would be inappropriate. But like, when I look back at it, like all I'm saying now is that I had a right to be anxious. Things were unstable in the home. And as I grew up, it just followed me throughout childhood. So I look back on all through grade school and high school. I was often worried about what other kids thought about me. I was often anxious about my grades. I was anxious about just going to school, what's going to happen, what might happen today. I was anxious about uh, sports. I was anxious about girls. I was anxious about, like, my anxiety would attach to anything. So it was like an equal opportunist, like, whatever. Like, it didn't really care. Just give me something, and I'll be anxious about it. As I got into adulthood, the worries just got bigger, right, because there's more on the line now. So... Now I find myself getting anxious about what if something happens to my wife? What if something happens to one of my girls? I get anxious about raising three daughters in a pornified, hypersexualized culture where boys have no clue how to even interact with girls. They didn't, have, they didn't know how when I was growing up, but in a digital age, they especially have no idea how to do it. It's ridiculous. And the things they think that sex is supposed to be and the way human trafficking has been exaggerated by the digital era, like I just, these are things... You're getting into the neuroses of my mind. These are things I get really anxious about, okay? Raising three daughters in this crazy world. I get really anxious about my job. I get anxious about providing for my family. I get anxious about money. I get anxious about getting older. I'm getting older, so people are starting to die, and that makes me anxious. Um, I'm starting to get anxious about my own limitations. I've got something here that just perpetually hurts. I don't, guys, I don't know what it is. It's, I wasn't a pitcher. I wasn't a quarterback. I don't know what I did. I don't know what this is, but like, it's just my left knee. I don't know. I don't know. Everything hurts. Okay. And so it makes me anxious. Like when, okay, when am I, when's my time? When am I going to go? What happens if I go early and I leave my wife and kids behind? Um, like this is just, you know, this is this, I, I tell you, just to be real honest with you. Okay. I'm trying to be honest. One of the major places where anxiety has shown up in my adult life is in doing what I'm doing right now, which is preaching. Um, believe it or not, just like most of you, I don't like public speaking, and it terrifies me. I don't like doing this. This is very scary to me, what I'm doing. It scares me. Um, I have had three full-blown panic attacks in my adult life, like the kind where you might need to call the ambulance because you're not sure if you're having a heart attack, right? My wife's on the front row. I've had three full-blown panic attacks in my adult life, every one of them around preaching. Always around preaching. Now, praise God that hasn't happened to me in five years, but it doesn't mean that I don't get anxious every single time I preach, including the fact that I'm anxious right now. So all that to say, my name's Adam, and I struggle with anxiety, all right? Hi. Hi, everybody. It's good to meet you. Um, I feel so less lonely. I love you guys. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and the reason I share that with you is not to manipulate you into feeling sorry for me, okay? Because I don't need you to feel sorry for me. Um, the reason I share my struggle with you is for two reasons. A, I want you to know that pastors are just people too, and we need Jesus and his grace probably more than you do, 
All right, that's A. B, the reason why I share my struggle with you is because as one of your pastors, I want to cultivate a safe place where it's safe enough for you to be vulnerable and you to be honest about your own struggle with anxiety, which I might be willing to submit to you is the core struggle that is underneath and driving all of your other struggles that you have in your life. Okay, statistically, I'm not the only anxious dude in this room. And I, as your pastor, I know that because like I, I work with you, so I know you're anxious. All right. So I'm not the only anxious person in this room and we need to understand what I'm getting at. We need to define it. Right. So can we do that? Let's define it. Here's a couple definitions of anxiety before we go any further. Oxford dictionary defines it like this. The feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease typically about an imminent event, something in the future with an uncertain outcome, or I really like Seth Godin's definition. Anxiety is repeatedly experiencing failure or tragedy in advance. Here's my definition. Anxiety is imagining a future without Jesus in it. That's what anxiety is. Anxiety is your mind and your thoughts racing and crawling ahead into the future, into a place that hasn't happened yet, and trying to imagine all the possible outcomes and worst-case scenarios so that you can get control of whatever hasn't happened yet that might happen, so that you can protect yourself from it, from whatever it is that you're afraid of. And it's physical. Anxiety is it's carried in your body. So anxiety is your body locked up tight, embracing itself for an impact that you're anticipating. Anxiety is all the emotional energy that you spend trying to get ahead and get control and manage whatever it is that you're afraid of. This is, this is what it means to be anxious. And I don't know if you've ever studied the state of anxiety in our culture, but we are living, I know, I know you hear me say this almost every week, but it's true. We're living in what sociologists call, they've, they've coined a phrase for it, the age of anxiety. Um, in 2017, journalist Alex Williams wrote an article for the New York Times titled, Prozac Nation is Now the United States of Xanax. And in the article, he says this, quote, remember it's 2017. If you're a human being living in 2017 and you're not anxious, there's something wrong with you. And what he's saying is, his point is, if you're not anxious, you're not normal anymore because anxiety is the new normal. And in this uh, article, he gives all the research to show that anxiety has gone from what used to be a medical condition and an emotional condition that, that affected just individuals to now it's become a social condition that is plaguing and defining and shaping an entire people. The whole cultural system, we need an antibody. Because the whole system is a nervous system. The whole thing is riddled with anxiety. So here's the, here's some proof. According to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, anxiety disorders are the most common form of mental health struggles in the United States, affecting about 40 million adults. That's one in five of us. That's one in five of us. And now it's affecting people at a younger age. Today, 25.1% of children between the ages of 13 and 18 struggle with an anxiety disorder. That means a quarter of our kids, one in four kids in our nation, is struggling with a debilitating anxiety. Studies indicate that the average child today exhibits the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatrist patient in the 1950s. You want to know what I get anxious about? I get anxious thinking about 
the implications of that for the next generations. Like that's the kind of kids that we're producing. What what are they going to produce? Right? Like this is where my mind goes. But 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 what's clear is it's only getting worse. Statistically, the United States has become, when you look at all these facts, the most anxious nation in the world. Uh, Scott Stossel is editor of The Atlantic. And uh, Stossel wrote a famous article titled, My Age of Anxiety. And he said this in his article. Every generation, going back to the Periclean Greece, to 2nd century Rome, to the Enlightenment, to the Georgians, to the Victorians, every generation believes itself to be the most anxious age ever. That said, the Americans of today can make a pretty strong case that they are gold medalists in the anxiety Olympics. There is widespread inequality of wealth and status, general confusion over gender roles and identities, and of course the fear, dormant for several decades, that ICBMs will rain nuclear fire on American cities. Listen to this. The silver lining for those with nervous disorders is that we can welcome our previously non-neurotic fellow citizens into the anxious fold. In the Anxiety Olympics, we just might be the gold medalists. Now, all of this, all of this was written before 2020. <laughs> all, all of this came out before a global pandemic and the chaos of, of, of that year, which has only exaggerated and raised the anxiety levels in our culture. So here's my point. Here's my point. You ask any pastor in North America, you ask any mental health professional or person in a caring profession, you ask them and what they will tell you is that in the midst of our anxiety, we are a people aching for peace, aching for peace. The problem is that left to ourselves, we don't have the coping strategies to get us there. Uh, we have strategies for, to, to manage or numb or medicate the anxiety, but we don't have the resources within ourselves to produce peace in the midst of our anxiety. Now listen, don't hear what I didn't say, okay? I'm not, I'm not, when I said something about medicating it, I'm not saying, I have, I won't name any names, but I have people in my life that I love, love, love and would die for who are taking anxiety medication. Shoot, I probably should have been on it off and on my whole life. and I, I, I don't know. But I'm, what I'm telling you is as pastors, we're not against that. It can, it can be God's gift to you. But here's what I am saying. Now, listen, here's what I am saying. We, we live in an age of anxiety and we long for peace. We don't have the coping strategies to get us there. We do have stuff to numb it, to medicate it, to help us distract from it. What we don't have in our own strength is the resources to produce a peace core level peace that heals our anxiety. So the good news, the, the question is, is, is there any hope for that in a culture riddled with anxiety? Well, here's the, I got some good news for you. The good news for those of you who struggle with this is that Jesus wants to meet you in your anxiety with gentleness and compassion. And he wants to give you the kind of transcendent peace that you're longing for. Here's what Jesus says in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I, notice, I do not give the kind of world, the kind of peace that the world gives. So this is not a numbing agent. This is not something to help you dis- distract yourself from the, from the sting of anxiety. Jesus says, I'm giving you a whole different thing. A transcendent peace, not like the world gives. Therefore, do not let your hearts be troubled. That's the word for anxious. And do not be afraid. 
In context, the peace that Jesus promises to give his disciples and us is the peace of his presence by sending us his Holy Spirit, his very Spirit. Paul picks up on this idea and writes about it in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, and he says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Peace. My peace I give to you. My peace I live with you. I leave with you. I give you my spirit. The spirit wants to produce this kind of peace in your life. Now, in light of that, because that's true, in the time we have left, here's the question I want us to wrestle with. How does this actually work? Because I'm not interested in theories. I'm after real peace, okay? So in real time, when I'm anxious, how do I overcome my anxiety and step into the peace that Jesus promises? How do I overcome my anxiety and experience the kind of peace that the Spirit says He wants to produce in my life? That's a good question. To answer that, here's what I want to do. Flip over in the, in the right in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to spend the rest of our time here. I want to look at Philippians 4, verses 6 through 9, and I just want to talk about what this looks like in real time on a practical level. Are you guys with me? All right. On that note, Philippians chapter 4, let's start in verse 6. Paul says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, whatever you're anxious about, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Okay, put your finger there and just stop for a second on verse 6. I want you to notice something. Notice that Paul is drawing a contrast between anxiety and prayer. You see that? On the one side, you've got anxiety. On the other side, you've got prayer. Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but instead... Pray. So right away, here's the big takeaway that Paul wants us to see. And it's not easy, but it really is this simple. To overcome your anxiety and experience the peace that Jesus promises, we have to let our anxiety lead us to God in prayer. That's it. If you, if you, if you want to, listen, if you want to heal the anxiety and you want to step into the peace and actually experience it, you have to let your anxiety take you to the Father in prayer. And Paul's picking up on something. He knows something because he's an anxiety expert too because he's human. Your anxiety is going to take you somewhere. It's going to take you to the bottom of a bottle. It's going to take you to a prescription or, uh, that you don't have a prescription for. Like it's going to take you to a screen. It's going to take you to food. Your anxiety is going to take you to workaholism. It's going to take you to an affair. Your anxiety is going to, because it burns, you got to have something to put out the pain. So your anxiety is going to take you somewhere. Here's what Paul's saying. Rather than turning to your coping mechanisms and turning deeper into your patterns of mistrust, if you want to experience this peace, we have to let our anxiety guide us and channel us to the Father in prayer. Now, that's huge, and I, and I want to, I really, really want to dive into that. But before I do, before I tease that out, can I pull over on this? I want to pull over for a second, and I want to address a couple things that Paul is not saying here, okay? Because I think if we, if I, if I don't, these are some of the defeater things. You're not going to be able to hear anything else I say unless you hear me say this. Clear? All right, first, when Paul says don't be anxious about anything but instead pray, he's not minimizing your situation and saying that whatever you're worried about is not a big deal. Because it, it quite possibly is a very big deal. At least it's a very big deal to you. So Paul's not saying, oh, oh, just don't worry about it. Just pray about it and trust God and everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. Right, like that's the Bobby McFerrin philosophy to worry 
don't worry, just be happy, right? Which, you know, may have won a song for the best Grammy in 89, but it's a terrible strategy for trying to help someone when they're anxious. Here's a really good rule of thumb. When someone's anxious, um, don't offer them false assurance that whatever they're worried about is going to be okay and it's going to work out because you don't know that and it might not. And a lot of times it doesn't. Because we live, listen to me, we live in a fallen world, a fallen, broken world, scarred and stained by sin where bad things are just waiting to happen. So, and Jesus talks about this. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today's evil enough. You got stuff, you got, you actually have good reasons to worry and be afraid. So, by the way, the reason we, you know why we do that? The reason we offer false assurance and false comfort is because we're anxious and we don't know what to say and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to help in those situations. And so we just end up saying stuff like, ah, just don't worry about it. (laughs) Okay. Oh, sure. As if I could just like push a button and that's okay. Like, I'll just, just pray about it and everything will, everything will come out in the wash. Everything will be fine. Paul is not doing that. He's not giving you a trite, oversimplified, over-spiritualized response to your anxiety because that would be shaming you for your anxiety. And that brings me into the second thing I want to say that Paul is not doing here. Paul is not rebuking you or shaming you for being anxious. I want you to, I want you to really want you to lean in and hear this. The command to not be anxious is not a rebuke, it's an invitation. Think about, think about the way you would, you would say this to a child. When you say don't be anxious to a child, you're not, you're not getting on to them for being human. You're moving toward them. And you're inviting them to draw near to you for reassurance and for comfort and for the peace of your presence, right? If you're a parent and you're attuned in the moment and you're not checked out, that's, you don't shame a child for being human when they're anxious. This is what Paul's getting at. Don't be anxious. It's an invitation for us to become like a child, which Jesus calls us to. If you want, if you want life in my kingdom, you've got to become like a child. And to come to our dad whenever we're anxious and afraid. Listen, the reason this is so... And I'm going to come back on that. I'm going to come back and talk about, about that more in a second. The reason this is so important is because so many of us already carry so much shame around our struggle with anxiety. And we, we, we put it on the screen. We can put it back up there. It's okay. The last thing that human beings need when they're in the struggle is shame for being human. And that's not what Paul's doing here. So I want to be very clear about this, okay? Listen to me. It's not a sin to suffer from an anxiety disorder. It's not a sin to have a genetic disposition toward anxiety. It's not a sin to have anxiety that's rooted in trauma. PTSD anxiety has nothing to do with you not trusting God. It's a physiological thing that's hardwired into your body. Your body is on guard because it's learned to be on guard because it's been traumatized. Jesus is very, very compassionate toward that. So it's not a sin to have... Anxiety rooted in trauma. That's not even the kind of anxiety the Bible's talking about. But I'll, I'll go so far as to even say it like this. Anxiety in and of itself is not sin. The reason why the Bible warns against anxiety and exhorts us not to be anxiety is because anxiety, 10 out of 10 times, if you don't do something about it, will guide you. Remember I said it's taking you somewhere? It will take you into sin. It's a portal directly into sin. Anxiety is. I always find guys that can preach it better than me. So here's what Josh Weidman says. He's a pastor, counselor, author. He wrote an article on the Gospel Coalition 
called uh, How Anxiety Has Grown My Faith. And in this article, he makes this statement. I want to be extremely clear. Anxiety itself is not sin, but anxiety can cause us to sin. While the Bible calls us to not be anxious, uh, it is communicating the necessity of stopping an action that is already going on. The force of the original Greek word is that we must stop perpetually worrying. The ongoing attitude of the unsaved human heart, it's like an, it's like an orphan, uh, to be, is to be anxious about the problems and difficulties of life, and you don't have a, you don't have a God that cares about you, is what he's saying. God commands his children to stop perpetually worrying about even one thing. If we go on being anxious and full of worry, we are not trusting God. This is the sin. Um, what we do in our anxious moments can lead us, take us either to a God-honoring response of faith or to acts of disbelieving sin. While we can't choose our anxieties, we can choose our responses. What he's saying is that when you're anxious, you have a choice. And the application for you and for me is that instead of your anxiety moving you deeper into your coping mechanisms, deeper into your patterns of control and mistrust, you you let your anxiety move you into a place of prayer and dependence and surrender and intimacy with God the Father. Anxiety is not a place where God wants to shame you. It's a place where God the Father, it's a place where your dad wants to meet you with compassion. He's not getting on to you when he says don't be anxious. He's moving toward you when he says don't be anxious. Don't be anxious, my child. It's, that's, the, that's the heart and the thrust. That's the tone of this passage. In his book, Sacred Fire, Ronald Rollheiser says it like this. I love this, man. He says, we are not born into this life with a clear sense of who we are, an easy sense of self-worth, a solid sense of security, and a sure conviction that we are wanted, loved, and lovable. In biblical terms, we are born anxious. What he's saying is that um, your, what your anxiety is trying to tell you when you're anxious is that you're a human And you have basic needs that can only be met through relationship. So if you're anxious, something about you needs to be soothed and comforted by the presence of another. You need to be reminded that you're safe. This is in there. I don't care how big and tough you are. This is what's in there. When you're anxious, this part of you is going, hmm, I need like a big, powerful, paternal presence to take care of me. I need to, I need to be reminded that I'm okay. I need to be reminded that I'm loved, that I belong and I matter. I need a sense of security. I need to know that I'm safe and I'm going to be cared for. In other words, here's what Rollheiser's saying. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what Jesus said when he taught us how to pray, our Father. What your anxiety is trying to tell you when you're anxious is your anxiety is trying to tell you that you're just a kid who needs their dad. That's, that's it. That's the definite. That's what it is. So like when my kids are anxious... They, they, they come to, they come to me. And if I'm not checked out, if I'm like in a good dad zone, which is, you know, 20% of the time, I don't know, some, some percentage, maybe it's getting higher. But if I'm in the good dad zone and I'm attuned, 
then when my kids come to me when they're anxious, I don't, it's, it's not my job to get onto them for being human. It's my job to move toward them and reassure them and comfort them in the safety and the presence of my love. This is Paul's point. Don't be anxious. Bring it all to your father. Let your anxiety guide you into the safety of the presence of your father. He is what he wants to meet you there. And he cares more deeply about whatever it is that you care and are concerned and consumed with. Listen, if we miss this, we miss everything. So I, I've got, I've just got to drill down deeper on this because in Western in modern Christianity in North American church, we, a lot of times we grow up in the church and we have this view of God where if I, if I asked you just rhetorically, what's the first image of God that comes to your mind? When you think about God, what's the image? Well, some of you would think about a king, right? The royal robes and a crown and perched on a throne. Some of you would think about a judge with a gavel in his hand. Some of you would think about um, a ruler. Some of you think about a creator. And listen, all those things, don't hear what I'm not saying, all those things are true about God. But if you want to understand who God is and what he's really like, you have to ask Jesus because Jesus has the right to define that for us. And when Jesus comes on the scene, I love it in John 17, 24. He says, you want to know what God was doing before all creation? Before he ever created anything, before he ever had a world to, to rule or an earth or a people to judge, before all of that, God has always in eternity past, first and foremost, been this, a father who loves his son. Jesus says, Father, he prays, I want, the, I want the disciples to see that you glorified me and you loved me before you did anything else. Before you ever created this stuff, you were loving me. And the good news of Christianity is Jesus came to make his dad our dad. He came to make his dad your dad. That's the hope, that's the hope that we have in the gospel. And so now we get to relate to God, not as this, I mean, he is king, but, but, but the thrust of it is, no, my dad is the king. That's what's cool about it. Like, it's not just he's a cold, clinical, distant king. It's that he's our father and he's the king. And this changes, this changes everything. So what Paul's saying here is when he says, don't be anxious, pray, he's saying your anxiety is a place for you to run to your father with whatever it is that you need. Peter says it like this, and Peter learned it from Jesus just like Paul did. Peter sums it up like this. You can cast how much of your anxiety? All your anxiety on the Father. Why? Why? Because he cares for you. There it is. It is safe to come to the Father, not with a little of your anxiety, but with all your anxiety, because he cares for you. So the question is, what do you need to come to your father about this morning? What, what are the anxieties that you're wrestling with that God's inviting you to, to cast on him? You know, maybe you're worried about your marriage. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about your job, financial situation, what someone thinks about you. You're worried about your health. You're worried about an upcoming doctor's appointment. You're worried about the phone call you're waiting on. You're worried about somebody else's health. I mean, fill in the blank. The invitation for you is to cast your anxiety on the Father and let Him take care of you. Now, let me get inside your mind for a second, because if you're anything like me, you're asking the question, well, that sounds great, but how do I actually even do that? Right? 
how do I, how do, how do you cast your anxieties onto the Father? I want to be able to do that, but how do you do that? Good question. Paul gives us some help here. Look at back in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 4. He uses three different words for prayer in verse 6, all getting at how we do this. He says, don't be anxious, but instead pray, petition, which is a word that means ask, and give thanks. Pray, ask, and give thanks. This is how you cast your anxieties on the Father. See that? I, wanna, I, wanna, I just want to say a brief word about each of these, okay? We'll be done. Pray. Let's, talk, let's start with pray. When Paul says pray, and this is fundamental stuff, but we got to keep coming back to it because, I, at least for me, I'm not very good at it. Pray simply means whatever you're anxious about, you just talk to God about it. I mean, it's that, it ain't easy, but it's that simple. You just tell him openly and honestly how you feel, what you're worried about, all the narratives that are spinning and running through your mind. Whatever it is, God wants you to talk to him about it. That's why Paul says in verse 6, in every situation... Bring your anxiety to God. Every situation means no topic is off limits. We try to tell our kids often, you can talk to us about anything. Because there's going to be some stuff later in life they're going to be afraid to talk to us about. Because they're going to be afraid, what will they think about me? What will they think about me? How will they view me if they know I've messed up and I've blown it big time? And I'm 16 years old and I don't have a place in the world to go to talk to about it. No, we want our kids to know because we love them and we care about them as dad and as mom. You can talk to, in every situation, you can bring your anxiety to us and you can talk to us about what's going on. This is Paul's point. In every situation, nothing's too big, too small, too weird, or too dark for God to care about. Whatever you're worried about, he just wants you to be honest with him. Listen, prayer is a place for you to come to God as you are, not as you ought Here's where prayer goes wrong. We grow up, we become adults, and we try to clean up our little prayers. And we make them pretty and pristine, right? Because we're, we're afraid. Like, what if this is not the theologically correct way? Can I even ask for God to give that to me? Can I ask for God to raise the dead? I mean, that just that seems crazy. Can I ask for God to do what seems to be impossible? Can I, can I talk to him about this? Or what will he think about me if he really knows this is... If he, if he knew the degree to which I don't trust him and I'm angry at him, guess what? He does know. And it's a safe place. Prayer is a place for you to come to God as you are, not as you ought. And, and if you want to, if you want a picture of how to do this, you just, your kids are teaching you how to do this. Look, just look at kids. When my kids come to me anxious, they come to me as they are. Runny nose, messy, anxious, so they don't even know how to pronounce the words right to ask for what they're asking for. They come broken and they come messy. And Jesus calls us to take our anxiety, to become like a child and come to the Father as you are. The truth is, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm just as needy and messy and self-absorbed and anxious as my kids are. I'm just more sophisticated at hiding it. And so I think. And prayer is a place where I don't have to hide it, right? I get to take off the mask and the real Adam meets with the real God. And he sees me for where I am and because of Christ, he loves me and he ministers to me and he takes care of me. So come as you are. When Paul says, don't be anxious, pray, he says, come messy. Come overwhelmed with life. Come broken. Come falling apart at the seams. Come not even knowing, having the right words. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to say this. I don't even know where to start, God. I don't even know. That's fine. 
Become anxious and He will meet you there. This is the essence of prayer. Just come talk honestly. So pray. Then Paul says, ask, right? He uses the word petition, which just means request. He says at the end of verse 6, present your requests to God. Make your petition to God. Again, this is the posture of a child. When Jesus teaches us how to pray in Matthew 6, he says, pray our Father. Prayer, Paul, Paul Smith says it like this, um, uh, Paul Miller rather, says it like this in his book of Praying Life. Prayer is entering into the world of a child where all things are possible. You know, ch- children will just ask for anything, will they not? They'll petition you about anything. There are no boundaries. If they want it or they think they want it, it's going to come out of their mouth. They're going to ask for it. My kids will ask me for little things like help tying their shoes or airing up a bicycle tire. They'll also ask me for impossible outlandish things. You've heard me tell the story before about when we were at the Kansas City Zoo and we had to leave because Lucy threw an all-out conniption fit at four years old because I would not bring home the polar bear from the polar bear exhibit. She, not the stuffy, the actual bear. Like she wanted me to bring the bear home. And I'm like, darling, I couldn't do that. I mean, it, it'll murder us, first of all, but like I can't, where are we going to put it? It's not going to fit in the civic. You know, like what do I can't, what am I supposed to do? I can't bring, I, I, but here's the thing. Why do kids ask, why do, why do my kids and your kids ask us to do impossible outlandish things? Because I want you to think about their starting place. Their starting place is they have just enough childlike faith and dependence to believe that their dad can do anything. They got just enough childlike faith left in the tank to believe that their dad is borderline some kind of superhero who can pull this stuff off. Now their mom doesn't, she thinks something different about me. Uh, but this is, this is what, this is what, this is how kids view their parents, right? This is their starting place. So their starting place is, well, shoot, I'm going to ask <laughs> because he can do it, right? What are you anxious about? What are you worried about? God says, come to me and make your request. What do you want me to do? Did you, did you know that was Jesus' number one question in the Gospels, by the way? Every, when he would bump into somebody, he would say, what do you want me to do for you? Not because he's a genie, but because God is a good dad who wants to give good gifts to his kids, And the reason why kids will pester and pray with persistence and petition, 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 petition is because they know that you love them and you, you want to say yes. And so they think, well, man, I'm going to ask because he might actually say yes. And Jesus says, if, if I get it right 20% of the time, think about how many times the father gets it right. That's me paraphrasing Matthew 7, 11. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11. If it's true that imperfect parents, we imperfect parents want to give good gifts to our children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? So what are you anxious about? God says, come to me with it, with your longings, your desires, your needs, your wants, your anxieties. And a child has no problem doing this because a child understands that if he doesn't ask, he won't receive Right? If you don't ask, I'm not going to receive because I'm dependent. And James, who is the brother of Jesus, who also learned this from Jesus, says some of you don't have because you don't ask. So, in, you know, instead of coming to God with your anxiety, you're stuck in your head. 
you're stuck in replaying the tapes over and over again about what did that person say and what do they really mean? And I'm really worried about what they think about me. And I'm really worried about what's going to happen if, if we move into this new phase in life and it's just a disappointment and what's going to happen about like this bill. I don't know how I'm going to pay for and Like what's it? all stuff that all things that like you should be concerned about, right? But, but the word of encouragement for you this morning is to get out of your head and bring your heart and your whole being to the father. Tell him what's on your heart. Ask him for what you need. Ask him for what you want. And then give thanks. This is where Paul lands it. Do all this with thanksgiving, Paul says. And he's not saying, notice, that you have to be thankful about your situation because sometimes the situation is dark and bleak and you don't need to be thankful for that. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But what Paul is getting at is it's really hard to be anxious when you're grateful. And this is ultimately where the Spirit wants to lead us in prayer. That's why we see almost every psalm ends this way with thanksgiving. Paul, what he's doing here is following the same pattern that you see in the psalms where you state, you state your case, you tell God where you're at, you tell him what's on your mind, then you ask him for what you need and what you want, and then at the end of every psalm you get to this place where of rejoicing in God. And, and remembering the hope that you have in him. So, Father, whatever happens in this situation, even if it doesn't go the way I want, the way I planned, I trust you, I love you, I trust that you're with me and you love me, so thank you. And, and you remember his goodness. And you count your blessings for today and you look forward to the hope that you have tomorrow. Anxiety says, anxiety imagines a future without Jesus in it, but the resurrection tells a different story. So you get to this place in your prayers of thanksgiving. And because it's not always going to be like this, guys. So thank you. It's not always going to be like this. And I want you to hear me say this because this is its own sermon. But thanksgiving really is key. Because in a way, thanksgiving is the doorway that you have to walk through in order to get to peace. Did you catch that? Thanksgiving is the doorway you have to walk through to get to peace. Why do I say that? Because to be thankful, it requires that you have open hands and you receive what you have with gratitude and you trust God for what you don't have. And this is the place where anxiety begins to melt and the fruit of peace begins to grow. Don't take my word for it. Let's take take God's word for it, okay? Verse seven, Paul says this. Do all this, Pray, petition, give thanks, and here's the results. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's the peace you're looking for. Notice that Paul doesn't promise that our circumstances are going to change, but he says that if you bring your anxieties to God instead of turning to your coping strategies and patterns of control, if you bring your worries to him, he will give you a transcendent peace that Paul says is literally, this is my paraphrase, it's mind-blowing, Paul says. Do you see that? It transcends all understanding. This is a peace that defies logic because it somehow cuts through all the uncertainty and the pain and, it, and, it, and the anxiety. So, when you experience this peace or you encounter someone else with this kind of peace and then you look at their circumstances, it doesn't make any sense. It's, it's supernatural. I want to give you an example of this. So let's, let's take a trip back to 1871. Okay, 1871, Horatio Spafford is a husband and a dad and a businessman in Chicago. 
And he had just lost everything he had in the great fire that broke out and swept through Chicago uh, in, in 1871. He spent the next two years working hard trying to rebuild his business so that he could provide for his family. And after two years of anxious toil, um, and it, they lost a child in that period as well to a fever, uh, Spafford says, you know what? We need a family vacation. We need a family. We got to get out of Chicago. We need a family vacation. So he maps out this whole trip for his family to sail to England. And on the day that their ship was scheduled to leave, he has some last minute business developments come up and he's unable to leave. So rather than cancel the trip, he sends his wife and his daughters on the ship to go on ahead of him. And he says, I'll catch up with you guys in a week, right? You guys go on ahead of me. I'll catch up with you in a week. And then he stays in Chicago to wrap up his business deal. And his wife and his kids all set sail for England. He stays in Chicago. A few days later, it reaches the local news in Chicago that the ship that was carrying his family collided with another ship in the Atlantic Ocean, and it sank. And 246 people had lost their lives in the accident. It's the worst disaster in naval history until the Titanic would sink 40 years later. So as you can imagine, Spafford is very anxious and, and his whole world's been flipped up, upside down. Everything's out of control. And he doesn't know if his wife and his, his four daughters are dead or not, right? And the next day, he receives a telegram from his wife that reads these six words. Saved alone, what shall I do? And so he learns that his wife, Anna, has survived, but all four girls tragically drowned in the accident. Now, Horatio's obviously devastated, blown apart. So he boards the next ship to go and be with his wife, who's in England. And at one point, they're taking the same trip that their ship took from Chicago to England. And at one point, the captain of the ship calls Horatio to come meet him at the bow of the ship. And he says to him, quote, A careful reckoning has been made, and I believe we are now passing over the very place where the ship carrying your family sank. And Horatio Spafford stands there at the bow of the ship, staring over the edge into these raging, angry waters that claim the lives of his four children. And he weeps, and he grabs a pen and a piece of paper, and he writes these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows, like sea billows, roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The true story behind one of the most famous Christian hymns of all time is a story of incredible, incredible tragedy. And I want you to notice, let's keep that verse on the screen for a moment. I want you to look at this verse. I want you to notice that Horatio is honest about his sorrows he doesn't slap a Bible verse or a gospel platitude or a smile on this and say, well, at least they're all in a better place. At least I'm still better off than what I deserve because what I deserve is hell. So I'm doing, I'm doing all right, brother. Like, no, no. Look at the, look at the image in verse one. It's the image of he's drowning in a sea of sorrows. The image is, I can't, I can't catch my breath because wave after wave of grief is washing over him. You ever been there? The, the pain of separation anxiety of being ripped away from his children, knowing he's never going to see them again, is coursing through his body. His body is in overdrive, has no idea how to respond. His body is freaking out 
with anxiety, with pain, with grief. And in the midst of all of that, he speaks somehow of this river of peace and all these waves. There's a small river of peace that he says attended to him. Literally a river of peace that carried him through the dark waters of his grief. This is the mind-blowing, transcendent peace that Jesus promises that his spirit wants to produce in your life. It's, it's a peace that has the power to carry you and sustain you in every situation, even or especially the, the darkest moments of your life. And not only does it, does it carry you, and Spafford actually sings about this in the next verse, Paul says it, it only carries you, it guards you. It protects you from the enemy. Paul says it guards your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. This is a word that literally means to patrol. The peace of God will patrol your heart and your mind and guard you and protect you from invasion and attack because this is when the enemy wants to get you, by the way. When you're at your most broken, your most, you're the weakest place, the most vulnerable, this is when the enemy wants to protect, wants to get you. And the peace of God says, don't even think about it. I'll protect you in that space. You're safe with me. How do you get this peace? Paul says, take your anxieties and bring them to the Father. It it ain't easy, but it's that simple. Last thing I want to say here, because here's the elephant in the room. At least if you're me, it's it's a big elephant in the room. Um, I prayed, and I'm still anxious. Now what? Um, Where's the peace? And, and if that's where you're at, I want you to know that like you're in good company, at least with me, because that's where I'm often at. I feel this way a lot. Here's what we have to understand, okay? The final thing I want us to meditate on. What you have to understand is prayer is not a silver bullet for your anxiety. Um, it just takes one shot to kill, kill a werewolf with a silver bullet, but your anxiety is a whole different kind of animal. It, 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 it's going to take more than one prayer. And that's the point of prayer anyway. Prayer is not meant to be transactional. Prayer is meant to be relational. God is not a, a, a genie where you put in a prayer request and then you get out what you want. Or he's not a vendor or a cosmic slot machine where you like put in a prayer and then out comes the quick fix of whatever it is that you want. Um, pr- prayer is, prayer is, don't get me wrong, I wish it worked that, that way a lot of the times. But, but it doesn't work that way because relationships don't work that way. And because prayer is relationship, it's going to require thoughtful intentionality, and you better believe it's going to take practice. And that's what Paul wants us to see as we close in verse 8 and 9. Look at what he says about thoughtful, wrestling intentionality. He says, verse 8, hey, if you're anxious, instead of dwelling on worst-case scenarios and letting Fox News and CNN and social media claim your thought life, call to mind whatever's true, Whatever's noble, whatever's right and pure and lovely and admirable, if anything is excellent, think about these things. Instead of letting the weeds of worry overtake your mind, or instead of giving yourself to the stuff that fertilizes the weeds of worry and letting it take over your mind, Paul says, meditate, ponder on that which is good, beautiful, and true, which, by the way, newsflash, he's just describing Jesus. So what he's saying is, it's hard to stay overwhelmed with anxiety when you're filling your mind with Jesus and the gospel. And, and, and so this is thoughtful intentionality. It's not just one prayer shot of a silver bullet. Again, it's also going to take practice. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. 
whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And look what happens. As a result, the God of peace, notice earlier he said the peace of God. Now he says the God of peace will be with you. It's, it's, not, it's not natural for us to, to have peace and not be anxious. What's, what's natural is for us to worst case scenario think. What's natural is for me to carry my anxiety instead of bringing it to the Father. And some of you are carrying it right back here in your neck. Some of you are carrying it on your shoulders, your back. You're carrying it right here in your chest. It's, but, it's the butterflies in your gut. You're carrying it. It's the, it's the lump in your throat. It's the loss of appetite. It's the I can't sleep. It's the I'm working all the time. Like, you know, it shows up physically in your life because that's what's natural is for us to put it all on me and I'm going to carry it. I'm going to figure it out. So because it's not natural, like anything, if we're going to experience, if we're going to come to God in prayer and release our anxiety and be filled with the peace of his presence, like anything, it's going to take practice. Practice makes peace. It doesn't make perfect, but practice makes peace. To close, I just want you to notice this little phrase, little prepositional phrase in verse 7. It holds everything together. Paul says, The peace of God, which transcends all understanding and guards your hearts and minds, is found where? In Christ Jesus. In other words, the peace that our world longs for And the peace that you ache for and are searching for is found only in Jesus. And Jesus is the one who told us in John 16, 33, he says to his disciples, I've told you these things so that in me, in Christ, you may have peace. In this world, you have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus says, I tell you these things to give you a a transcendent peace. These things that Jesus is talking about in John 16 is the fact that he's about to go to the cross and give his life to save us, and he's going to be raised from the dead three days later, and he's going to give us his spirit to protect us and keep us and seal us until the day of redemption when he returns. And Jesus says, hey, disciples... I tell you these things. The reason I tell you all of that is so that you can have my peace coursing through your veins. What Jesus is saying as we come to a close in communion is when you're, when you're anxious, look to the cross, which is the ultimate demonstration and proof that you're safe. God loves you. He has saved you by giving his own life. You are safe in his love. When you're anxious, look to the empty tomb, which is the ultimate security for your future. How amazing that you don't have to be anxious. Anxiety robs you of joy today because it's stuck in a future place that hasn't happened yet. How awesome is it that we don't have to do that because we have a future hope that is secure because Jesus is alive and walked out of the, out of the grave. And if you're in Christ Jesus, his resurrection hope is your resurrection hope. How awesome is it that we have the, the, the Holy Spirit with us to guide us and lead us and who promises he will produce this fruit in our lives. This is really good news for anxious people like me.